This morning is April 1st. It is 2007. Of course, it is Sunday morning, but not just any Sunday. It is Palm Sunday. This is the morning where Jesus made His triumphal entry. Our message this morning is called The Way. I've shared a story with you before that I read from a man named Spiros Lutetis, but I want to share it with you again. Like some of the recent events I'm talking about, I share this story about the nature of it also gives David time to finish writing on the board. <laughs> there was a missionary, and he went all the way into interior China during a time period where no white man had ever been there before. He looks a little bit like an alien, and the people don't know what to think. This guy is different than them. He's talking about gods that they had not seen. I don't know what it is our be able to accept something from a position of humility. And how much more humbling could it be than have somebody who doesn't look like you, who is not from your culture, come and tell you about a God you should be serving in or not? The people began to listen. And one, a native of interior China, was particularly perplexed. He said, I have heard about Buddha all of my life. And I have heard about Confucius all of my life. I've heard about all of my life, and I don't know what to do about this new message that I'm hearing. He began to cry out to the God of heaven. His people called him Shang-Ti. They didn't worship him, but they said there was a God above all of the other gods. And his name is Shang-Ti, the sky God. And he began to cry out to Shang-Ti. He said, what is the difference? What is it about this Jesus this man keeps telling me about? And that night he had a dream that he had fallen in a very deep hole. Good, brother that he had fallen in a very deep hole. And Buddha came by, and he leaned over and he looked down into the hole. He said, my friend, if you can reach up to me, I'll help you by pulling you out. And boy, doesn't, doesn't that describe Buddhism? Human efforts to attain enlightenment. Then Confucius walked by the hole, leaned over, and looked down and said, ah, my friend, you have fallen in a hole. You need to try not to do this again the next man that walked by was Jesus. He said nothing. He simply looked down, crawled down into the hole, helped him by putting him on Jesus' own back, and crawled right out of the hole. The native of interior China came to the missionary the next day and said, now I understand the difference between your gods and mine. We serve a God who will meet you right where you are, who will help you if you're willing to let him, who will put you on his back and carry you like an eagle might take care of her chicks. We serve a God who cares that much. This triumphal entry message this morning is a story about a king who did just that. Turn with me to Acts 11. Y'all awake this morning? Did I already put you to sleep? <laughs> Getting there. There, 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 there. Y'all are comforting me like a mother comforts her child. There, 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 there. You don't know what about when they say there, saints. We preached a message about being in the place God wants you to be when He wants you to be there. So now when I call out Scriptures, everybody says there. <laughs> in Acts 11, I want you to hear this wording, starting in the 26th verse. 25th verse. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called 
Christians first at Antioch. Do you have any idea what year this is occurring in? This is about the year 50 A.D. When were people first called Christians? About the year 50 A.D. Now, I realize we can argue chronology in the Bible all day long, and I just simply refuse to do it. Whether you plus or minus Jesus' birth from B.C., I don't know. Somewhere around the year 33 A.D., our Lord was crucified. And yet they were not called Christians anywhere on the earth by any group of people until almost the year 50 A.D. Isn't that interesting? In fact, the word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. Only three, whether plural or singular. And in this case, who is calling these people Christians? Greeks at Antioch. In other words, Gentiles who spoke in Greek and looked and said, oh, those guys are Christ-like. They follow someone who is a Christ and they are trying to be like Him. They are Christians. In Acts 26, 28, we find another instance. Let's go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Acts for just a minute. In Acts 26, 28, we have Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, a perverse Jewish king who is standing in the stead of Jesus, taking his office, appointed by an antichrist-like leader, and he's, and he's speaking in the 28th verse. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? This is the second occurrence of the word. Again, who's speaking? Agrippa. This is not a believer. He has heard what in some circles was a derogatory term. And he says, are you trying to get me to be one of those guys? What the Greeks call Christ-like, Christ followers. Paul gives him an answer. He does not deny the term. And neither do I. I will proudly wear the name Christian, but I'm doing this to prove a point. There's a third instance where Peter says in 1 Peter 4.16, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a criminal. If you suffer as a Christian, the glory of God rests on you. And he goes on to talk about that. In other words, if people are accusing you of a crime, being a Christian, the only three times this word appears in all of the Bible, it is with Greek or Greek-influenced leaders pointing, speaking about followers of Jesus. But what do the followers of Jesus call themselves? Stay in Acts. We're going to run through a few scriptures real quickly. Acts 18. In Acts 18, starting in the 24th verse. Yeah, brother, there. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great fervor. And he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the... What's that next word? Synagogue. Synagogue. We have a man still called a Jew who knows the Scriptures thoroughly. And he is in a synagogue preaching about Jesus accurately. He knows the way about Jesus. With that thought in mind, turn your page to Acts 19.23. Watch this thought develop. In the 23rd verse, 
about that time, there arose a great disturbance about... You see that it's capitalized. You know why? They taught about the way that Jesus lived in Judaism. They saw themselves as Jews who were following the way that Jesus practiced Judaism. At no time in the first 50 years of Christianity was it ever considered. In fact, it wasn't considered until around year 32 that Christianity and Judaism were two separate things. In other words, there was a conflict going on within one home, but it was within that home. There were Orthodox Jews that believed that this was a sect, and they called it a sect, and they denounced it. But the early believers in Jesus saw themselves as Jews who had found the Jewish king, the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish prophet. My, how far we have fallen. Today, we can't consider Judaism and Christianity even remotely similar in most cases. Churches warn people about Jewish legalism. And Jewish synagogues warn people about a Gentile God that they call Jesus. It was not this way in the beginning. And friends, today... You have to peel back the layers of the onion. You have to return to a first century mindset to understand exactly what the first century triumphal entry was about. I want to read to you two more scriptures real quick, and I'm going to read these to you. But if you want to write them down, Acts 24:14. Listen to how Paul says this. 13. And they cannot prove... To you, the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Paul considered himself a follower of the way. Opposition called it a sect. He goes on in the 22nd verse to say almost identically the same thing. Over and over and over, they saw themselves as followers of the way. Now, this particular term in Hebrew, not Greek, has extreme significance. They understood law, divine teaching, instruction, pointing you in the way that you should go. They saw Torah as a life-giving substance, showing them the right way to live. But what do you do with the verse that says something like, you shall not work on the Sabbath? Well, is it work to open your Bible? Is it work to walk to your neighbor's house? Let's, for argument's sake, say those things are not work. But is it work to walk to Steve's house? At what point does not work become work? This became something called halakha, which basically means, I know the law, but what is your interpretation of how do I carry this out? Well, isn't it interesting then that they looked at Jesus and said, halakha, by the way, is translated the way. They looked at Jesus and said, how do we carry out the law? By watching Jesus. You want the right interpretation? It is displayed in His life. Everything about Jesus showed the right way to the law. The way we say that in our Western theology is He lived perfectly and He was sinless. He is the example. Jews saw Him as the way to walk before God. Are we clear on that? Okay, let's talk about something called tethered. Real quick, before we get to tethered. This divorce that happened in Scripture started with a second Jewish revolt. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Josephus? People read his books, Thrones of Blood. They read uh, 
about his histories. He is a Jew living as a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. His life touched both animals, and he wrote about that. Actually, Jesus was just before him. But as he's writing, he is also a guy who led a group in a second Jewish revolt. Everybody knows that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. But what you may not have known was that Israel reorganized as an army and fought against the Romans under an emperor named Hadrian. And they almost won. Titus came in leveled the city in 70. But in A.D. 32, Hadrian almost was beaten. This caused such an intense hatred for the Jews. It caused such a burning fervor for the Jews that laws were passed. They exiled the Jews from Jerusalem. No longer could you be a Jew and even walk into Jerusalem. Lies began to be propagated from Rome itself about Jews all over the empire. Well, there's a problem for Jewish followers of the way in this day. The reason the Jews almost won is they rallied to a false messiah, a guy named Bar Kokhba. And the rabbis pronounced this guy as the Messiah. Well, if you were a Jewish follower of the way and your people had a Messiah, what does that do to you? Put you in an position. You either have to choose to be allied with them and deny Jesus or to be allied with the Romans who also denied Jesus. You're in a very difficult position. They did their best to remain neutral and it caused a rift from two ways. The Jewish community now hates them. They would not participate in the rebellion, even though they're Jews. The Roman community hates them. Why? Because they're Jews. These are people now without a country who are claiming a city that is above and worshiping a king that no one could see anymore. This is the beginning of the rift between Judaism and Christianity. As time goes on, replacement theology creeps in. There are more Gentiles in the church than there are Jews. We're in a governmental environment where everybody hates Jews and the idea is born. Israel is dead. The church has replaced it. That first appears in writings in A.D. 150. Oh, now it doesn't take long. The wolf that has been eating the church, devouring it. By the way, how did they say Rome was founded? Oh, that's right. Two young boys were nursed by a she-wolf, Romulus and Ramus. Well, that wolf, just as Paul predicted to the Ephesian elders, put on sheep's clothing. And in the year 313, an edict of toleration was issued. Less than 300 years after Jesus did His work on the cross, a tolerating Christianity goes out to the whole empire and the whole world. And it doesn't say Christianity is wonderful. It says we're now going to tolerate it. But along with that, there was already a Jew-hating spirit. There was already a division between the Jewish roots and this fled fledgling Christianity. And the idea began to get popular and spread all over the Roman Empire that the Jews killed Jesus and therefore practiced deocide. They killed God. And so it was popular to find Jews anywhere you could in the Roman Empire and hurt them. This is why the Jewish community reacted so negatively to the movie The Passion. They were scared. Based on their history, they were scared of how it might portray them and how Gentiles would react. It's amazing when you dig into these things. It was never supposed to be this way. Let's turn now to Luke 19. I want to show you something that is just beautiful. And I'm sorry about the history lesson, but if you don't know it... Amen. 
Luke 19, my friends. You find out that racism and hate is a very old thing. <laughs> and if you don't do it on the basis of color, as was practiced here, unfortunately, you do it on the basis of geography. <laughs> and if you don't do it on the basis of geography, you do it on the basis of religion. And if you don't do it on that basis, you find something that makes you distinct from someone else and a reason that you are better and they are worse. This is sinful human nature. And it's been replete in the church in every way that you can imagine it. But it stops with generations that return to the roots of the Word. Right? Because I've got news for you. We're all Americans. Jesus wasn't like any one of us. We wouldn't wear the clothes He wears. We wouldn't eat the food He eats. And we wouldn't wear our hair the way He wore His hair. It's not like us. And yet He's the ultimate and He's perfect. The Gospel requires every human being to accept it from the standpoint of I don't have it together and I need your help. You have to be humble to receive it. Y'all in Luke 19? Let's get going in Luke 19, the 28th verse. So let's get going. We're already going, right? After Jesus said this, and I would love to go back and tell you what He said, but I don't have time. After Jesus said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As He approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a tied there, which no one has ever ridden. There's going to be something that you would ride on, but it has never been ridden before. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Not very often do you hear that the Lord needs anything, but He needed this colt. It's a part of His master plan for reasons that are so so many that I'll give you a few of them here and it blows your mind. Those who were sent ahead of Him went and found it just as He had told them. As they were untying the coat, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the coat? They replied, The Lord. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. What was Jesus on? The colt, Right? As he went along, spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the crowd, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Does anybody know where that's from? Psalm 118, the last part of the great Hillel. They had been singing this as they ascended to Jerusalem. You know why they were ascending to Jerusalem? Passover was near. Feast of Unleavened Bread was near. One of the three feasts that all Jews anywhere in the world had to make the ascension. They call it Aliyah. The going up to Israel. They had to elevate themselves to the place called Zion. They did it joyfully singing. And one of the songs that they sang was about Jesus. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Where on earth did they get this idea? I taught you all the other night about the Davidic covenant where God Himself said there will always be someone sitting on David's throne. Somebody who will rule from David's throne forever. The crowd is beginning to announce Jesus as a King who would reign on a throne forever. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, 
the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. They've just announced him as king. Why on earth could the man be weeping over it? If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What had they just said? Peace. Glory in the highest. But Jesus knew that they did not yet understand what it would take to truly bring them peace. And what is peace? What have you learned? It's shalom. It's the sense that all is right between God and man. A perfect flow of authority from the throne right on down being expressed in your life. Hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. One of the few times in Scripture where Jesus absolutely, no way to deny it, claims Himself to be God. He's entering the gates of Jerusalem. They're announcing Him as King and proclaiming peace. And He's crying over them because they don't really understand that this is God's visiting to them. They don't really understand what it's going to take to bring peace. Is this so much different than the church today? Saying all of the right things but not at all knowing how to carry them out? Floundering in disobedience? Jesus enters a temple next. And I'm not going to read it to you because we're going to read it in another passage. But do you remember what he does? When he enters the temple, does he fall down and say, Wow, the sanctuary of He calls it a den of thieves and robbers. And the man of peace purges evil from within the temple. He purges it. Turn with me to another scripture. I'm going to read this and I'll hopefully bring some of this to light. It'll be Matthew 21. There, that girl is fast. In Luke, we found out that Jesus rode a colt that the people were singing the great Hillel about the king coming, that Jesus wept over them and said, if they had only known what would bring them peace. And then He cleared a temple. Read with me in Matthew, the same account, starting in 21.1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Sound like the same story to you? Yeah, me too. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. You're going to find a what? Last time we were just talking about a colt. Now we find out there is a mama donkey. huh? Mama donkey, that's the King Eric translation in the southern <laughs> south. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This, I'm going to try that at the car lot here soon. <laughs> Amen, Fred. That avalanche, the Lord needs them. It didn't work. I've seen people try that. It didn't work when I was selling cars either. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Every time you read a sentence that says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, understand that the audience had read the prophet. They were different than most of the American church. They read the Old Testament. Oh, uh-oh, ouch. I'm sorry, this was not class in seminary. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. What prophet? Where? What prophet? 
Oh, thank God for those footnotes, right? But that's not in the original manuscript. How would you know? Did you notice that Jesus never quoted chapter and verse? There were no chapter and verses. What did He do? Is it not written? What did that do? That put the burden on the back of the hearer. I should be able to walk in here and say, David, is it not written? And David say, yes or no? Right? But what do we do? We read it like a law book. In the seventh chapter, in the third verse, Jesus said, Friends, you're supposed to be in love with this. It's supposed to be dwelling in you, the word near you, in you, not far from you. You shouldn't have to have chapter and verse. It should be your very life. You are following the way, and the way is contained in this book. By the way, Apollos, he knew the Word of God, the Scriptures, it said, accurately. What Scriptures? They didn't have a New Testament. What Scriptures? We're a New Testament church. What did the New Testament church read, friends? You cannot understand triumphal entry by watching literature. You cannot understand the triumphal entry from the New Testament alone. They are working with a group of people that were first in the 39 books of Enoch. And this had special significance. Why go through telling them that he's riding a colt and that it has a mama donkey with it? Why go through Is it meaningless detail? Well, sure, if you want to sleep through church. But if you'd waited all of your life for a deliverance, if you'd waited all of your life, amen, to be set free, then when you see what was promised starting to happen, you get excited. Why are they calling him king? Why on earth are they jumping up and down and saying peace? Because this is what they had waited for. But just like the church's view of the second coming now, the thing they very much waited for and wanted, they didn't understand. Man, you can buy your eschatological views like cereal. Go buy a book on any subject, pros and cons to each. The church is as confused about the second coming as they were the first. Let's read this prophet. His name is Zechariah. You can find him by hanging a left. In Zechariah, there had been a promise. And my God, what a glorious promise it is. I want you to understand Israel was formed by promises spoken to a man named Abraham in 2000 B.C. Those promises took 400 years to start to come to pass in that there was actually a nation born out of Egypt. It wasn't until 1600 B.C. that Exodus is occurring and that we have a legitimate governing function. 400 years it took. It's almost twice as old as this country. And then after it is formed, it goes through horrible upheaval. Time periods of judges where every man does what is right in his own eyes. Time periods of false and wicked kings. And in the midst of all that, God says, there's one king that I like and I'm going to put another one on the throne like him. Now Israel has gone all the way through a Babylonian captivity. 80 years or 70 years of not good things. Israel survives that to be replanted in their own land, only to be conquered again by Alexander. Actually, we went through the Medes, the Persians, then the Greeks. And after Alexander's untimely death, probably divine intervention, the earth was divided into four generals. The Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the four generals, two of the four that are pertinent to the discussion. And as time goes by, those generals degrade. And a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes shows up, an Assyrian. All of these people trampling over Israel, all of 
of the time them being trodden on by the Gentiles over and over and over. And they are waiting for something. They're waiting for a day when they're sovereign again. They're waiting for a day when someone is not looking over their shoulder making them do things. They're looking for freedom. The Greeks had conquered the whole world. It felt like Israel against the world. And Zechariah has a promise for them. In Zechariah 9, starting in verse 1, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, it's very scriptural that I shout. <laughs> Bring your BC headache powder to church. Why would they be joyful? Why would they shout? See, your King comes to you, righteous and having salvation. When you read the word salvation, we've been taught to think little naked babies with fluttering butterfly wings and clouds, you know? Salvation. Oh, we float off into heaven. This was not salvation to a Jew. Salvation to a Jew was liberation from the yoke of slavery. Liberation here on earth, temporal, now. Set me free, God. You told me to be a sovereign, independent nation. And I'm being trampled by bully nations around me. Save me now. Something's happened to us. We've become so influenced by the Greek culture that we see everything spiritual as happening somewhere else. Somewhere outside of our senses. Friends, the Bible teaches the meek inherit the earth. That kingdom is coming this way. The Bible teaches a salvation that includes the earth being liberated from frustration. We're too heaven-focused. It's another place. Salvation will save me from my present circumstances. Amen? Your present circumstances could be the horrible job, the unbelieving spouse, the addiction, whatever it is. Save me now. I'm not waiting to be saved. I'm being saved daily, both from the devil's power and my own weaknesses. They were crying out for salvation and their king. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, one writer says, hey, Jesus is on a colt. The other points out, it's not just any colt. I brought his mama as proof. It's the foal of a donkey. Why? Jesus was going the extra mile to show them, I am a gentle king. I am coming to you in this way. And the writer preserved it. Watch what the promise is, though. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, that's northern Israel, and the war horse. Jerusalem, that's southern Israel. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim shalom to the Gentiles. Do you hear that? When they received Jesus as their king coming in, they were expecting Him to take away war horses from Jerusalem. Get the Romans out of here. Proclaim a peace. Enforce Israel as the head of the nations. This is what they were craving. This is what was promised. They just didn't understand what it would take to get there. And we who have inherited it, we've inherited it without any work. And so we've not done any work to find out what we've inherited. You ever give a teenager a car? Yeah. Don't be surprised when they beat it up. Come pay for it and watch. They'll wash it and wax it and love it every day. Mm hmm. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the 
blood of my covenant with you. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. This must have been strange for them. They're reading, looking for a temporal salvation, something to happen now. And it speaks of that. But what else does it speak of? To the Jews, the waterless pit was an abyss. It was this place somewhere in the grave that they understood even righteous people couldn't get into the presence of God. They were gathered to their fathers next to Abraham's side. The King James word is Abraham's bosom. But they understood that it was in a place that also contained dry aridness and uh, torture called Tartarus. They said, your prisoners will be freed from the... Well, what do you mean prisoners? Even when they died in the faith, they didn't go into the presence of God. They were held captive until somebody would come and bring them into the presence of God and the presence of God would come to the earth. This is what they were waiting for. This was the Jewish hope. This is why next Sunday you'll hear me say a thousand times Paul was on trial for a resurrection. This was the hope that those who were in a pit would be brought out and that the presence of God in them would be joined and they would reign here on earth. This is the biblical hope. The people are waiting for this as they're announcing King Jesus. They're waving palm trees and laying their cloaks in the road. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. And even now I announce that I will restore to you twice as much. He says, you think it was good when Israel was... You think that was good? It's going to be even better this time. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Now, you be honest with me. Let's think back. You men who are older than 20, think back to when you were 20. You men who are not yet 20, imagine yourself 20 full of strength and vigor and not a whole lot of sense. They've read this prophecy. They've been raised on this hope. The Romans are brutally oppressing them. They see Rome as an extension of Greece because Rome came right out of Greece through those four generals. They see everything, in fact, their word for Gentiles was Greeks. Okay? They see everything that's not Israel as the influence, Greek-speaking Gentiles, of oppression on them. They read this. They see a king, gentle, riding on a donkey, coming with salvation. But they see sons being roused against the sons of Greece. What do you think they want to do? This birthed the zealot movement. It's a possible motivation for why Judas did what he did. But that's another sermon too. They were hoping for a temporal overthrow right then of the Romans. Have you ever wondered how they embrace him on Sunday and kill him on Wednesday or Friday? Watch this. There's a pause in all of this, right? The English writer put a chapter heading in it. He says, then the Lord will appear over them. Then. I love that word in the Bible. It's the most frustrating word there is. When is then? We don't know. But we do know there are signs in it. Watch this. Then the Lord will appear over them. His will flash lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound a... What is the world waiting for? Trumpet. The shofar. One of them. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. Who's them? Israel. Destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day. They hear that it's going to happen when He rides in, then they hear, 
then it will happen on that day. But they don't catch the valley between the two mountaintops that they see. Would you have? No, neither would I. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of His people. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Turn back to Matthew 21. With that expectancy, you see Jesus coming on a donkey. Are you excited? You've been singing the hell all of your life waiting for this to happen. You've been ascending Jerusalem waiting for the day you see the King come through the doors. And this is just one prophecy. The entire book of Daniel is dedicated to the same thing. He even lists numbers of months that they had been counting since Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the temple. They've been counting. They've been waiting in anticipation. The disciples went, this is verse 6, and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. This is one of those funny translations. What did they sit on? Cloaks. They didn't sit on both donkeys. Jesus was not water skiing on donkeys. But both donkeys were together, and the writer's pointing that out. Friends, I want to submit to you a spiritual interpretation that can accept or reject. It's okay. It's just a picture for me to you before we move on. There is a problem in the church today. We don't understand what the hope was, so we don't understand what we've inherited. We don't look into the roots of the tree, so we don't understand what it took to produce the fruit we all enjoy. This older donkey, you tethered a young colt who had never been ridden to an older donkey, usually its mother for a reason. You had taught the mother how to follow your lead. The donkeys are notoriously stubborn. That's why in the Bible, they almost always represent a man. <laughs> All you ladies should be saying amen. What you... <laughs> yeah, notoriously stubborn. And so what you would do is when you had one trained well, you would take a young one and disciple it by chaining it to a mother. When she stopped, it had to stop. When she went, it had to go. This donkey that Jesus rode was tethered to its mother because it had never been ridden. This new thing, Christianity if you want to call it, followers of the way, with an emerging faith, a newness within Judaism, a restored, a revival, a return to purity in Judaism. But it was supposed to be tethered to the ancient and most oldest of wines and religions, something beautiful that God Himself had established, the Jewish culture. Because when its tether is cut, when it's totally separated from its mother, we get off into every weirdness you can possibly imagine, looking for gold dust in your churches, waiting for angels' feathers that they don't have to appear in your churches. All of this ridiculous garbage that plagues our churches. And it's because we've said, we are free. We are free. Even from the Scripture itself. And it is wrong. It's wrong. We were meant to be tethered but I want you to hear this. Jesus was riding the colt, not the mother. What God is doing and what He needed was a new thing out of Israel. The birthing of a new movement, a messianic movement. And this messianic movement would bring salvation to the world, and it is. But I believe we will see a day when that tether is restored so that the one who was, this was designed for and built for will see some of themselves in us. You go back and read Romans 11 tell me if you don't see that. But 
That was a gift today. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Can you imagine not understanding I was me? And I'm looking at this. How did Jesus sit on them? I don't get it, you know? Very athletic guy, right? <laughs> the very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. You've heard Palm Sunday before, so I didn't want to go into it all. This is a sign of victory. Their victorious king is coming in to crush the Romans, to set them free, to bring the salvation they had hoped for. They see the king on the donkey. It has to be. They missed the then and on that day. They mistook it for this day. If you think that's stupid, or, oh, those poor dumb Jews, they throw away prophecy books about every seven years because their predictions, their interpretation of the Scripture have been shown to be utterly false, ridiculous. You know how many prophecy teachers taught that the Iron Curtain would never come down? Yeah, you don't see those books on the shelves. In fact, even our popular prophecy teachers today would like to forget the things they said in the 80s. Because we interpret prophecies by our newspaper headlines. And these Jews were no different. Prophecies best understood in the rearview mirror. Once the event happens, you can look back and go, Oh, wow, God was good. The Jews didn't use prophecy for predicting the future, or they weren't supposed to. You know that it's going to happen because God said it would happen. How it happened? A mystery. Do you understand? Tell me the charismatic world hadn't got this wrong. Do you know how many times I've got this wrong? Probably will next month too, you know. Uh, I hope to retain this word. What did they shout? Hosanna to the Son of David. This expression comes from Psalm 118 and means save us now. They are crying, relieve our frustration, our burdens now. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. There's a little hint there. The prophet. Why not a prophet? This is Jesus, a prophet, one among many. No. There had been a 400-year mark of silence called the interbiblical period. This is where we get apocryphal books from, where God did not speak. At times in your life when you don't feel God speaking, there's a reason. Because after a long period of silence, you're ready to hear whatever He has to say. He's getting your attention. Growing up in my home with Gary Kinchin, my father, if he got quiet, I had to get attentive. You understand what I'm saying? Something important was going to happen. There'd be a price for not getting it right. He got quiet, and John the Baptist began to announce, One's coming. One's coming. One's coming. A lamb. The lamb of God. What an interesting message that is. This prophet had been spoken of by Moses at the founding of the nation. It's Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me, but anybody who doesn't listen to him will be totally cut off from the people. He didn't say he'd cut off the people. There wouldn't be a group of people anymore. That's replacement theology. He said, I'm going to refine this group of people. Those who listen to his word will still be in the group. Those who don't, will be thrown out. Friends, there were Jews who listened to the Word. In fact, they hung on every word. They were believers at the cross. They were believers at the resurrection. And all of the first 
three Christians were Jews until we get to about 50 or 60 A.D. The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. We have a prophet and a king who has shown up and they are excited. Then Jesus enters the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those doves. It is written. Friends, don't look at your Bibles. Look at me. It is written. Will you know where it's written if I read it to you? Oh, you might not, huh? Let me read you the words. Don't look down. It is written, he said, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus stood up and announced that to the crowd. It is written. He didn't tell you it was Jeremiah 7. Would you have known? They did. And they knew the context it was set in, and it meant something to them. You know what Jeremiah 7 talks about? People who need to be cleansed. A temple who has become just lip service and no action. It says it's holy, but inside it's rotten. And God says, I'm going to tear it down. said, so that my people will repent and renew their hearts. They're waiting for the king to save them, and the king is saying, I've examined you, and you are not ready. There's more work to be done. In fact, Jesus goes to this temple twice. This is another one of those Bible conundrums. John puts the clearing of the temple in the second chapter. So our brilliant theologians through history, and I've I I got to be careful not to be too demeaning. They know things I'll never know. They're awesome men much smarter than me. But they go, wow, John puts it in the second chapter. All the others put it in the third year of Jesus' life. This has to be an inconsistency. There's a problem in the manuscripts. Something's wrong. John took it out of order because whatever, right? No more time investing in their myths. Understand the mother donkey being tethered to Judaism. Do you know why he goes twice? Because Leviticus 14 says when you examine a house, if you find a destructive force in it, such as mildew or leprosy or something else, leave for a perfect period of time. Seven days, he said. Then come back, examine it again. If you still find the same thing there, announce that every stone must be taken off of the other and the house completely destroyed. You know what Jesus is fixing to tell them? Oh man, I'm weeping because you don't understand. This is God's day of visitation. I've examined you and your temple and I found a destructive force working in you and I can't work with it. So I'm going to tear it down and rebuild. Jeremiah said it and Leviticus 14 said it. But I want you to hear this, saints. God is not in the tearing down business. God is not about destroying things. He's in the rebuilding business. I want to share with you two more highlights, then we're going to Leviticus 14, but don't turn there. Jesus pronounced destruction of the temple. The next thing that He does is curses a fig tree. A fig tree in the Bible had always represented, we say, religious Israel. It's Israel. And He cursed it for one reason. It had no fruit. He had examined the temple. He had examined the people and they did not have the faith that they were supposed to have. And so He said it was going to be torn down. He cursed the tree, did the same thing, and then taught them. That's exactly the context. The next thing that they do is go, who are you to tell us this? Where do you get this authority? This is a concept in Judaism called Shmiha. Thank you, Nick. He turned me on to that a long time ago. Shmiha. What this meant is a rabbi couldn't teach something new without two other rabbis saying, yes, we approve. He's right. 
Where did Jesus get his shmiha? That's what they're asking. Where did you get this authority? He says, well, I'll tell you what. You tell me where did John get his authority, and then I'll tell you where I got mine from. This is because John they had accepted as a prophet, and he said Jesus is the one. The other one that testified for Jesus is the voice from heaven. They saw both a testimony on earth and a testimony in the heaven. Listen to him. The people believed that they were calling him the prophet, the king. But they didn't like what he had to say. He wasn't there to save. He was there to say, it's rancid. Scrape the rocks, tear them down, throw it out. We must rebuild. That's the kind of God we have, a rebuilding God. Let's imagine for a moment we're not talking about them. We're talking about you on this triumphal entry. Let's not imagine for a moment it's a nation far away in a galaxy long ago. Let's imagine it's you. It's your household. Your rocks. Your person. Your temple have found to have a destructive force in it. What do you do? Well, now that we know we're tied to that mother donkey, that we have something that will help us, that will guide us following the way, what did Jesus use as a guide for His life? The law. Let's turn there. You, you don't see life in this. If you don't, you need glasses. We're going to be in Leviticus 14. There. Mandy, read in a very loud voice, booming with authority like Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Your title heading for 14. Cleansing from infectious skin diseases. Oh, wow. Isn't that good news if you've got a skin disease? The problem with the church is they don't know they're diseased. We have looked at something that is rancid and called it holy. We've looked at a spirit of entertainment and called it anointing. We've looked at people with charisma and said it's holiness. And it is skin disease, friends. It's the kind of thing that you're supposed to present yourself to a priest and say, hey, look at that. Should I cut it off or keep it? <laughs> How much of your skin do you want to cut off is the question. Not very much. Huh? We kind of like it. But I don't want to lose that. Man, that's going to cost me something. Yeah, and if you love your life and you cling to that, you'll lose it. The attitude, saints, that you must have, and I'm telling you this before I tell you the good news, is if your eye causes you to sin, you would tear it out. Now, I don't want you in here with one eye next sermon. But what I'm trying to tell you is that is an attitude. Jesus used a Hebraic teaching, a, a system, Calvay Comer. And what it meant is I'm telling you something that is very heavy to emphasize something that's true about a lighter concept. If you would tear out your eye to enter in the kingdom of heaven, certainly you'll tear pornography out of your life. If you would tear out of your body and arm, certainly you would tear out of your life the love of money. This is the concept that he's teaching. But all of these misunderstandings that occur in Scripture occur because we have cut the tether from the mother donkey. We don't understand Judaism, so we cannot understand our Jewish faith that we've inherited. Skin disease. Your attitude has got to be not, should I get rid of it? But how far do I go? I'll go as far as it takes. You say, you want the head? You can have the head. Because you're the only thing that gives me life, Lord. That has to be the attitude. An all or nothing. Too long has the church debated a concept just totally ungodly. Can He be my Lord without... Or can I be saved without Him being my Lord? What a ridiculous question. It makes you wonder whether the theologians read the Bible. The very word Lord means He owns you and controls you. You've given up slavery in the world for slavery to righteousness. That's what we are. Leviticus 14. Would you all give me a little grace with the time? 
I mean, this is too good to stop now. Leviticus 14. The Lord said to Moses, These are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing. When he is brought to the priest, the priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. The person has been, if the person has been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, some scarlet yarn, and some hyssop be brought for the one to be found. Then the priest shall order that one of the two birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird in the open fields. Friends, we are supposed to present ourselves to the priest for healing. We have one high priest. But that's not good enough. We are supposed to carry around with us the testimony. We are the live bird set free with a scarlet cord called salvation, saved by His blood around our neck because of what He did on a wooden cross when hyssop was lifted up to Him. We are carrying around the testimony of His death that we might be cleansed. We are supposed to be disease-free because of what He did flying through the countryside for all the world to see. Somebody had to die because of the skin disease. And He died for you so that you could live. You know what else you did? You went on to anoint a right ear with its blood and then a right big toe with blood. Why? Mandy, what do we call that big toe? The great toe. I asked her because she's a therapist. That makes her the authority on the subject. The great toe. You know why? Because if you cut off that big toe and you cut off your thumb, your opposable thumb, they know what that is, when you cut that off, you lose the ability to do things. You are greatly hindered. It's hard to even walk. But, in fact, there was a king called Adonai Bezek who used to take other kings and cut their thumbs and big toes off. He tried to rob them of the sign of their anointing. When you have that anointed with the Messiah's blood, that means you divinely hear. Everything that you hear goes through the filter of the Messiah. Is this good for me? Is this edifying for me? Is this something I should be doing? Everywhere you walk, you walk on your strongest side. Is anointed. It's leading you in the places you go. You go where He tells you to go. It speaks of being divinely led. Your hands. Everything that you do is done with the knowledge of you were sick and you are now healed and anointed as a priest. The rest of Leviticus 14 talks about that temple. You tear it down and rebuild it. Your house. God is not a God who wants to destroy only. He wants to tear you down to rebuild you. He did it to Israel and He will rebuild them. He did it in your personal lives and He is rebuilding you. We all have to reach a place of humility to accept the Gospel. I have a couple more concepts to share with you. In John 12, turn to 12. Two more John Scriptures, one Matthew Scripture, and we are done. If I stuff you too full, you won't want to come back and eat next week. Actually, I hear this from personal experience. I hear the more you eat, the more you want. 
Amen. Learn to devour the Word, saints. It will save you. In John 12, we have the same triumphal entry. We have the same crying out, Hosanna. We have the same uh, exhortation about Zechariah 9. You hear in the last part of the 19th verse, the Pharisees saying, look, the whole world's gone after this guy. They're so frustrated. Then you hear Jesus predict his death. Uh, Let's see if I want to pick up there. Yeah, 20th verse. Now there were (laughs) some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the feast. (laughs) Who's not happy if you're reading Zechariah 9? The Greeks? (laughs) Yeah, the sons of the Jews are going to whoop up on you. (laughs) So they have a, a question for Jesus after this, okay? They came to Philip. Was uh, from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds, something the world would come to know as Christians. The man, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for an eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You know where Jesus got that? Psalm 116 says, everybody says, oh, where is your God? I tell you, nations, He's in the heavens and we will glorify Him. They've been singing it on the way to Jerusalem. And it helped to know the call. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd heard that there was... They, the crowd heard that that was there... Oh, I can't speak. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What a strange thing to say. Unless you knew that you were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and that you recognized the time in history where God had judged the gods of this world before. Exodus 12, verses 12 through 13, teach that the Passover was God's judgment on the world. Those covered in in the blood of the Lamb were spared from judgment, but somebody's firstborn son had to die. Jesus has just got through telling them, unless a kernel of wheat gets planted, unless it dies, it can't produce what it's supposed to. And now he says, now's the time for the judgment on this world. And they're wondering, this has something to do with the Exodus. Do you remember in the transfiguration in John 31, Moses and Elijah show up? What are they talking with Jesus about? His upcoming Exodus. Your English Bible says, departure. It's not a leaving, friends. That's mindset again. That's a leaving the earth. It's not what it's about. It's about the judgment of the gods of this world while saving the sons of God. Now, here's the really, really interesting thing, though. 
They had missed the idea. They knew about salvation and the triumphal entry. They had missed the idea that they needed a cleansing, that they still needed to be covered in something's blood. They knew that the gods of this world would be judged. But in the Exodus story, it was the Egyptian son who died. In this Exodus, God would provide His firstborn son who would die. How powerful is that? There's an Exodus yet coming. God's firstborn son accepted the judgment that you deserved. He's the bird that was killed for you so you could go free. He's the firstborn son that died for you so that you could be spared from death. This week is the Passion Week, saints. This week is the week where the blood that bought you should be on your thoughts. Something had to die for you to experience the freedom that you have now. With me to John. Verse 20. There's a day when every man comes to realize this. On that day you will realize in my Father, who are in me, I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Take out your black highlighter. Go ahead and erase that. The church doesn't believe it. The church says you love Him if you profess it, regardless of what your deeds say. Jesus said, whoever has my commands, by the way, that Hebrew word is mitzvahs, the same command for each individual commandment in the law, whoever has my commands and obeys them, He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love him and show myself to him. Have you considered the converse of that statement? Hmm. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you show yourself to us and not the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. It sounds like he's kind of on target, isn't he? My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What was that prophecy in Zechariah 9 about? Is about God setting up His kingdom through an earthly king on the earth. What was the Exodus about? Exodus 6.6 teaches that God will bring Israel out of Egypt. He will free them. He will redeem them. He will take them to be His people and then He will join them as God to them. That's what Exodus, the whole Exodus was about. The Jews every year at Passover celebrated this fact with four cups of wine. Four cups, one for each one of these throughout a meal when they taught about these subjects. We'll get there in a minute. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own, but belong to the Father who sent me. All that I have spoken will still with you. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. Peace I leave with you. They were in Zechariah 9 for peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I'm telling you, you're going to get peace, but it's not going to be the way that you thought. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to my Father, for, my, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. That's the purpose of prophecy, by the way. 
I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. Jesus said in John 12:30, it was time for judgment on this prince. What you didn't know is that Jesus was going to lure him into attacking Jesus. Somebody's firstborn son had to die. The surprise is it was God's. But the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. We are in a situation where God's righteousness was being poured out. Where the gods of this world hear it and are trying to stop it. Where the church or the people of God have a diseased house that needs to be cleansed. Something has to pay a price. And Jesus paid it. The question is, how do we respond to such a great love? Turn to Matthew 27. It's our last scripture. And to make it easier, it'll be Matthew 27, 27. In Matthew 27, Jesus is eating a Passover meal. The animal that they celebrated every year as having caused them to pass from death into life. The first words John the Baptist ever announced about Jesus is, Behold, the Lamb of God. People immediately connected Him with the Exodus. They immediately connected Him with that, although they didn't understand it. They wanted Zechariah 9, and they missed the then and on that day. And listen to what Jesus says. If I can find it. You know, I said Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-seven, and that is not right. Forgive me. It's probably twenty-six, huh? Yeah, it's twenty-six. Matthew twenty-six, twenty-six. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, "Take, eat." This is my body, just as if they were eating the Passover lamb, but they're eating the Word of God. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. Drink from it, all of you. Before I read any further, you remember I told you there were four cups? The four cups that represent right there on the board? But he says, the cup. The question is always, well, which one? Which cup? If this is a Seder meal, which cup would it be? And you read them and you wonder, which cup? Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you the truth, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day... Church, read that last sentence to me. When I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus stopped short of completing the Seder meal. At the first cup... They celebrated that He was bringing them out of the slavery that they had been in. At the second cup, they celebrated the freedom that His new faith and teaching would bring them in their lives. At the third cup, they celebrated His blood which would redeem them. This is the cup He held up for covenant. How do you know that? Because He said, I will not drink this fourth cup with you until I take you, My people, to be with Me in My Father's kingdom. They had been waiting for for 1,600 years. Do you think they were happy to hear it? They just didn't know what they would have to go through to get there. They wanted Israel's salvation immediately. 
And they didn't know there would be 2,000 years of hell on earth before they would be restored. Saints, all we teach in Christianity is that you're blessed. And we forget about the tearing down of those stones in the mildew and the disease that you have to be cleansed of and the long process between the king saying you're redeemed and him taking you to be with him. This process is called discipleship. It's called sanctification. And our church is doing it. The triumphal entry is glorious the day you receive Jesus. But the real work begins the next day when you realize the sacrifice that is truly involved. The question, saints, is what do you do now? Where is your heart? Will you forsake everything you have for the kingdom? Will you give everything you have for the kingdom? Or will you choose some item, some enjoyment of the flesh, something as more precious Jesus. That's the question for you today. You have all week to ponder it. Next Sunday, we will talk about the resurrecting power of God and the glory. But for the next seven days, I want you to do what the Israeli people did. Today would be the tenth of Nisan. You would have taken the Passover lamb into your house. You would have thoroughly inspected him. You would have said that he had no flaw. You would have waited to cut his throat, cover your family in his blood, realizing that this perfect thing had to die for your imperfection. And you wouldn't take it lightly. And your kids would cry. And everybody would go, oh my God, that's horrific. And yet there was something life in it, a new beginning. This week, that's what you're supposed to think about. Jesus, the firstborn Son of God, died for you to cleanse you of your diseases. And on Sunday, we'll celebrate what the new life is. Amen? Stand up. Let's pray. Oh, I wanted to tell you one more thing. When they leave this meal, it says they went out and sang a hymn. That's what Matthew said. They went out and sang a hymn. The same hymn that we sung here today. It was Passover. They were singing the great Hillel, Psalm 115 through 118. And every concept we taught in this message is in Psalm 115 through 118. God has taught His people by immersion always, immersing us in culture, immersing us in His Word so that we can't help but miss it. How could we ignore such a great salvation? How long can we refuse to swim in the Word for some carnal television? How long can we do it before we're found guilty? No more, saints. When you see each other, when you run into each other, ask each other what you've been reading. If there's a long silence, fill it in with what you have been reading. Encourage each other with the Word. Build an environment and a culture in this church that when people walk into, just by being around you, they have been around Jesus. 